Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. In this podcast, I look beyond the easels, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creatives about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own artwork and experiences. Episode 75, Breathing Life into the Pages of Vintage Books with Craig Williams. Hi everyone, and welcome back. So before we jump into the interview, here's a few updates that have happened in the last couple of weeks. Episode 75, <laughs> that's a lot of shows. Doing a, a podcast is a lot of work, and uh, you know I'm, I'm eyeing that 100, which probably won't happen until around May next year, and I hope to get there. But I'll tell you what, uh, there's friends of mine who do a podcast, and they're celebrating 100 episodes this week, and that is the Make Do podcast. It is hosted by Julia Scott and Tiff Arment. You may recognize Tiff Arment because I had her on an earlier episode of this podcast. And so Julia and Tiff talk about art and making. It's a really wonderful podcast about two friends exploring their own creativity. They've talked about paint and digital, fiber, pottery, stained glass, and woodworking. They're really open about themselves and their journeys, and I look forward to each one of their episodes. So I encourage you to check out their podcast. It's available everywhere. And when they come out with the 100th episode this Wednesday, send them some love through Instagram, through Twitter, or send them a message directly. And just, um, yeah, I think we need to celebrate these, these milestones. And these women have done a fantastic job with this podcast. And... And I'm always so excited when I see a new episode of their podcast. I listen to it almost immediately. So uh, please check them out. Make Do is the podcast. So a little follow-up with my uh, last episode. I had uh, Lara Call Castinger on, and we talked about her idea of a perpetual journal. And I now have three entries. (laughs) So I've really kind of enjoyed this. The whole point is that you, for each week in the calendar year, you put down an entry of something that uh, inspires you, something that is is growing, that you see outside, uh, something organic. And I'm kind of taking it a little bit of a different route, but I'll get there in a second. So I'm in an area where we still have snow, the ground is frozen, so we don't have a whole lot growing. But I decided to draw a pussy willow as my first one because it is uh, kind of the first sign of spring where these uh, where the willows start pushing out their little furry bits on their branches. And then I did a daffodil the following week because that is kind of the first flower that tries to push up through the uh, the warm soil that's uh, on the south-facing side of our house. And then recently I did rose hips. And these rose hips aren't growing, but they are kind of a reflection of last season. And they've kind of been beaten down by the cold in the winter. And they look a little bit battered. So I thought it was an interesting subject for my perpetual journal. So in, in working on this journal, I find I'm looking at things a little bit differently, which is which is awesome. You know, this this opportunity to be able to take a walk outside and have my phone with me, be able to take these pictures and explore kind of what's happening now with nature and how things have made it through the various seasons. And so I'm doing this all with Micron. I use a Micron either a 005 or a 003. I'm also using a mix of transparent watercolor with the Daniel Smith uh, paints that I use, as well as uh, gouache. And 
What I found uh, in putting these pages together, because the whole point is you put one image on a page or on a spread, and then you come back a year later, and then you add another image. But what I'm finding is as I'm adding this one element to each page, I'm thinking about the story. Uh, my theme this year, my creative theme this year is storytelling. And so I'm looking at each of these pages thinking, this could be a really interesting scene. And what's cool about it is I had the Pussy Willows and I'm thinking, oh, and behind that I could put this and that and an animal maybe. And then I move on to the next page. So I'm not really going to think about that <laughs> until next year. And so I find that this is a really exciting experience in, in understanding composition and story rather than just a botanical kind of reflection of, of the world around me. And this is just my take on it. And I'm excited about what I'm able to do with this. So I'm thinking of things like I'm putting the pussy willows in the foreground and maybe in the midground, I'm going to put maybe uh, some, you know, an animal possibly or a tree and maybe in the background, I'm going to put something a little bit different. So I am thinking about the whole scene and maybe the scene is a reflection of that week, even though each item is from a different year. So it's it's kind of a fun experience. And, you know, this idea of, of storytelling and applying it to what I'm doing every day has, has been great for me. It's it's causing me to look at things differently. And I think that's uh, that's important. So I'm, I am going to continue doing this. I feel like it's not a huge pressure on me to draw, paint one thing per week into this journal and see where it takes me. I, I don't know what the end point will be. I don't know if I'm going to do it for a year or five years, but I'm enjoying it right now. And I really like the challenge, especially where I live, to be able to find these things that inspire me, that motivate me, that I, I, I see outside that reflects kind of the season I'm in. And uh, there will be animals. <laughs> I have some animals that I know are coming because this is part of their season. And uh, so it's not just going to be uh, plants for me. It's going to be animals. Uh, so I, I love that kind of mixture. And I don't know where it's going to go, but uh, I hope you follow along for that journey. So the other thing I did as part of my perpetual journal is I recorded my first Instagram reel. And I, I shouldn't say first, I've done others, but this is the one I actually put a lot of thought into and not scripting it, but kind of putting a story around it. So what I did is I took that uh, rose hip piece that I did in my perpetual journal and I recorded some video throughout the process and I kind of made it fun and I threw in a soundtrack and I really enjoyed it. It was, it was great to be able to do that. I did get carried away where, you know, you're recording little bits along the way and then you spend 15, 20 minutes on something and realize, oh, I forgot a video, this part. And so I did a little bit of that, but I think it all came together well. I uh, recorded all the video with my iPhone. And so I edited the whole thing with LumaFusion, which is a great video editing app. It's available on the iPad and on the iPhone. It's quite flexible. It's quite powerful. And so I did the whole thing on that. I exported it and then just threw it against a soundtrack in both Instagram and TikTok. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I think I'm going to do more of this stuff. Uh, going forward and trying to show kind of the process, the tools. So keep an eye out for that on my social feeds and we'll see what see what happens next. So one of the things I struggle with sometimes is I have a full-time job and I do the podcast and the art all in kind of my spare time. I was so busy this last week. Like there was like three days. I didn't even really think about art very much. And when I realized that, I was really feeling anxious. It was like, oh no, I've I've lost it. I've it's it's gone. And you know what? 
there was an odd bit of circumstance where one day was pencil day. And this is, I follow a calendar that has all these, it tells you all the holidays, or not holidays, all these um, days of celebration around the world. And it was pencil day. And it's like, you know what? I've done some pencil work. So I put together some of my, uh, the pieces I've done in the past. I posted it on Instagram. And just that activity, just that post inspired me, inspired me and reminded me that I am an artist, reminded me that this is core to who I am. And I think it's important and kind of reminded myself that, you know, I've I've gained followers. We all kind of gain followers incrementally, but those new followers know nothing about me, really. They may look at my last three, six, nine posts. They may just look at the one that came up in their feed. So I think it's important to remember that you've got to kind of reach back into your archives, reach back into those those stories you've told in the past and 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 bring them up and expose some of that to your to your new followers and it also causes you to look at your own work and kind of reflect on what you've done well and areas that you wanted to explore i think we need to constantly have that narrative in our head about our own journey and our own story and so all this to say you may get busy you may get distracted but you know what the art's there it's there for you when you need it and it's okay that you don't work on something for a few days or a few weeks or whatever the case, but it is there for you. And that's going to come up in the podcast as well in this interview coming up after. So I just want you to remember that. And I'm hopeful that if you've kind of been away from art for a little bit, just to remember that it's there for you when you need it. And you can come back to it and no one's going to dock you points (laughs) or rank you lower because you're coming back to it after being away from it for a while. So I hope you continue to create and explore that part of you and try new things, and focus, and uh, enjoy this journey as human beings. And so the other thing I did uh, that I've been doing on a regular basis is these live draws that I do Sundays at 1 Eastern. And last week, uh, it kind of fell apart for me. I had everything ready to go, and I had this new software, and I was going to do it on YouTube, and then I tried to connect it to a schedule event, and everything just fell to pieces, just technology. But I was able to do it this week. And so this past week, we did a dragonfly. And so I was able to uh, broadcast through YouTube doing a live stream. And I had the reference and I had a picture of me up for a little bit. And then I had my desktop. And it was a great experience. I'm trying to make it so that people aren't necessarily holding their phone with Instagram to kind of follow along in doing these things. And so I'm going to tweak it, I think, each week. I may not do YouTube every week. So I will post on Instagram, whether it's going to be on Instagram or it's on YouTube. But these live draws are an experience for us to be able to sit down as creatives for like an hour and a half. And you can draw what I put up as a reference, which I usually share um, a day before. Or you can just work on your own piece. And then when we're done, we share our work. You can message me directly if you don't want to share it on social media. Or you can just tag me and then I will uh, share it with my followers as well. But it's a, I just think it's a great experience just to kind of chill and hang out and keep us at all accountable and kind of being creative. And I mean, you're just blowing me away with the work that you're doing. There's so much diversity and uh, people using so many different mediums and taking different approaches to the same reference photo. It's just so cool. It's so cool that people are doing this. They're engaged. And uh, we're all kind of hanging out and having fun. So if you haven't been part of one of these uh, live draws, 
check it out. You can follow me on Instagram. That's probably the best way to do it. But I would also recommend following me on YouTube because beyond the live draws, I'm going to be doing more video content there. So you can find a link in my profiles on both Instagram and Twitter, but you can also find it in the show notes for this episode as well. So before getting into the interview, you may notice there's a little bit of an audio change near the end. We had a technical issue, so it's not you, it's us. It doesn't sound that bad, but I just thought I would mention that in advance. And so with that, enjoy the interview. When I found my guest this week, it felt like I rediscovered an old friend. His work and his interests were in line with mine, the solid mastery of graphite, but also an interest in other mediums. He started with a science education, but art has always been by his side. His journey has not been easy, and he has chosen to take the winding path. His focus around scientific illustration has allowed him to work with researchers and organizations in Tasmania to document the local fauna from spiders to crayfish and so much more. His recent work in giving new life to pages from vintage books with his bird illustrations will inspire you and have you wondering, how did he do that? To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Craig Williams. Hi, Craig. How are you? Good, Mike. How are you? And and I just wanted to say thank you very much for including me in um, all of these conversations. It's yeah, a real honor. Thank you so much for coming on. I've uh, I've been watching you for some time, and uh, you were on my list, and then things moved around a little bit, and it's like, I wonder if I could get Craig on short notice, and I'm so glad I was able to, to pull you onto the podcast, because I've been a huge admirer of your work, and I feel like um, when I've read things on your website and I look at your art, I feel like we... Uh, we're connected in not just when we started and when we took it seriously as a matter of art, but also the, the subjects that we draw and the tools that we use. So I'm really excited about this conversation. So thank you. I, I feel the same way. I've been following you for a while. I've been following the podcast for a while too. So I agree. There's, there's, a, lot of, um, there's a lot of synchronicity, I think, in maybe some background and, and timings and also the tools that we use. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're on the other side of the world, so I love technology that we can connect this way. Oh, I'm glad that we got it sorted so we could actually chat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I always start with an origin story. I mean, there's so much to talk about with you, but I want to kind of understand where people came from. Um, because I think part of the artist's journey is we have so many people that go through and get their, um, their BFA, their MFA. Uh, you know, they sp- have their experience as, as a, an artist coming right out of school, and then we have others who come to it um, organically or through some other method, either uh, earlier in life or later in life. But I always like to find out where we come from. And so I'm wondering, as a child, were you the artist? Yeah, well, sort of and sort of not. I mean, in primary school, I was I was definitely known as the kid that could draw. There was, uh, I think in grade six, they our school always had a fete or a fair, a school fair on every year. And it was always a big event for the, the classes to actually draw the posters. And they had a poster competition. And I drew a bird, of course. Um, it was a large Major Mitchell cockatoo. And I actually used Tipex or Whiteout, depending on what you call it. Mm-hmm all of the feathers in the wings so it had all of this texture in it and um, teacher even allowed me a bit of extra time to get it finished because I was running behind time of course <laughs> <laughs> and that that was the that was probably the picture that solidified it in in primary school anyway it didn't actually win the poster competition somebody had a much oh. a much better concept idea which 
everybody was telling me that I should have won, but the other person's concept was brilliant, and like I could see why they chose it, it was fine. But yeah, grade all through primary school, but grade six particularly, I was known as the kid that could draw. Went to high school, grade seven, uh, didn't like my art teacher and gave up art and didn't do art uh, anymore in any schooling at all beyond that. That's that's interesting. I, I think for anyone listening, I think it's the thing that hits me with that is it's the same experience I had, um, not with the teacher necessarily, but it's that idea that you could have the, this one this one thing happen to you that either points you in the direction you need to be going or diverts you from where you need to be going. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, not to blame the teacher, but that one experience probably, you got back to art anyway. <laughs> yeah, it didn't stop me drawing, uh, but it was, it's sort of hard to explain. I mean, I suppose he was doing what the curriculum required in what we were being taught, but a lot of it was quite abstract uh, there was a lot of um, just drawing shapes and things like that. There was no direction, and he would sit up the front of his class, and and while we were doing our exercises, he'd be painting these highly realistic landscapes. And I'd look at what he was doing and go, well, that's actually like, I'd like to be doing art like that, not this sort of stuff. And I, I could not see the relationship between what he was doing and what he was teaching. They're, they're just... It was just the way he went about it, I suppose. But you were still doing it. Um, after that class, were you still drawing or painting? Were you still, was creativity still kind of happening for you in your spare time? I still did it. And I still did it as a pastime through school. No painting at all, just drawing. Yeah. Just drawing. Yeah. But it is, it, it is that, it's one of those things where there can be a seminal moment with a teacher that can set somebody on a path. And like you said, it can actually draw somebody away from a path for a period of time as well. So you went through high school, eventually you went into university, but you didn't go into art, did you? You went, you took a slightly different route there. Yeah, I. Uh, so high school, I became very science orientated and then went to college and then to university and, and ended up with a bachelor degree, a double major in geology, geophysics with a minor in zoology. So yeah, heavy, heavy science background. Did you like that? Oh, geology. Absolutely loved it. Funnily enough, though, I didn't go into geology as a job. It's simply simply because uh, TAS University has, they, they basically focus on bringing up uh, graduates into the line of economic geology. So it's really into mining and exploration. And I, I di it did not sit well with me, that whole, you know, air quotes, rape and pillage of the land mm -hmm. was happening, particularly uh, so when I graduated sort of back in the early 90s, like there wasn't a lot of in, environmental sort of concern going on about mining. And in fact, TAS Uni had only just started an environmental geology course um, right when I was leaving. So it wasn't even recognised at that time. I wanted to go into paleontology but the only, uh, the only jobs in paleontology were research jobs, so in a university. And you had to have uh, such oh, outstanding marks to get into something like that. I had good marks, but they, they just weren't at that level. So, yeah. What did you do enjoy most? Because that's, that's quite a, uh, you know, with a double major and a minor um, <laughs> going through your, your degree. What did you enjoy most about that experience? 
I'm a, I'm a sucker for learning. I, I love to love research and I love um, getting into a subject in depth and, and just finding out all of the nitty gritty. Loved all of that sort of side of it. And, and to be honest, that research aspect and, and getting into a subject really heavily has stayed with me my whole life. And even a lot of those scientific principles that I learned have flowed through into other jobs and things like that as well. So, I mean, I always, always had an interest in, in sort of science and the natural world. It was always natural history sort of things. Mm-hmm. Sort of flowed right back to childhood with the books that I used to have and things like that. So, so how did you, from there, you come out of university with a double major and a minor in zoology. How did you then transition to your first kind of drawing or painting experience like how did that kind of come back to you in a way that it uh, was more than just something you did in the evenings or the weekends Mm. i in trying to find where i was going to sit in in terms of uh work careers and things like that i did a few different part-time jobs and alongside those part-time jobs i um extended that just drawing and sketching different things I actually started drawing uh, historic houses in Tasmania. So we have a lot of quite amazing colonial sandstone buildings here from back even from the time of colonisation. There's still a lot of those original buildings around in, um, yeah, in central Hobart, which is our capital city, and a lot of the small outlying towns all around Hobart. So I started doing historic houses And out of doing those, I started getting commissions for people's houses. So I was actually doing house portraits almost, if you want to call it that, and um, started selling a few pictures here and there. So that was probably my first foray into actually selling pictures and commissioning processes and things like that. But it it wasn't, uh, even though it was something like, oh, it was always in the back of my mind, gee, I would love to do something like this as a career, uh, I'd didn't have the nous at the time to be able to turn it over into a business uh, at all. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine does that uh, now. With uh, she draws people's houses, and I think she does wonderful work at it. It's almost like you were exploring urban sketching before urban sketching existed <laughs> in drawing those buildings. Maybe, but it wasn't quite sketching because that was. I used to do them so intricate, and I suppose. It's a bit of my mindset with that sort of, uh, you know, left brain, right brain, the science side of my my head. I was going quite, 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 quite detailed into these pictures. So even drawing individual, um, you know, shadows and light on the corrugated iron roofs and things like that. So, yeah, I, I was making them highly detailed. They weren't quite sketches, no. <laughs> these were all pure, pure graphite pencil on paper that's that's all i used yep interesting so at some point you decided you want to try animals and what pulled you into that realm i mean beyond remembering that experience as a kid but (laughs) what pulled you what pulled you to animals i always used to draw birds when i was a kid um and in fact like a little story gave my grandparents all a pencil sketch i must have been 11 12 maybe and Dad, who was working as a glazier at the time, actually framed them up in these um, lovely sort of aluminium frames that he'd made up and glass and backed and everything like that. So that that was my first artworks that actually ended into inner frame. And, and of course, there was birds because my grandfather was, he loved birds as well. So we had a bit of a connection there. 
but yeah, the move to, to animals. So I spent a bit of time as a keeper in a wildlife park in Tasmania. Um, that was both, was looking after native species, basically. We had a couple of, um, we, we did actually have koalas and that in the park. They were as an added attraction, but koalas aren't actually found in Tasmania. Um, but I got to work with Tassie devils and quolls and wombats and things like that. Used to actually go into the into the pits where the devils were and do a devil show and talk to people all about the history of the devil and things like that. And then you'd feed them and, you know, there'd be lots of photos and the devils would be going crazy around you. So there was quite a, a link and connection with animals there, which I then took when I went to a... Uh, regional museum um, so it's the second largest museum in Tasmania and it's the largest regional museum in Australia so that's the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery. I got a, a volunteer position there in the zoology department and the first thing that I did for them was I drew um, in ink stipple uh, astacopsis which is um, giant freshwater lobster that's found here in Tasmania and they can get up to a couple of foot in length so wow they're, they're absolutely massive and they used to have it live in the museum um, and it was in a big tank and it and it passed away so they had it in a freezer so I used to go in one day a week and the the head of um, zoology would take the lobster out of the freezer the night before I'd come in the next day when it had partially defrosted and be able to pose all the legs and and draw it. And then I'd go back in the freezer at the end of the day and then I'd do it all over again. <laughs> Did you ever get a craving for seafood in that kind of work experience? Craving for lobster for a little while anyway. It was quite rank by the end of it. But um, it allowed me to use, I used calipers and everything like that in the drawing, so it was perfectly scaled at half size. And they then used that that illustration in um, some display uh, display things that they had up for the, for the museum, which was quite nice. So that was my first foray into like a wildlife art subject beyond beyond childhood i suppose and like a proper wildlife art sub subject did the uh, and so were you still doing this just in pencil i did this was done in uh pen and ink and it was uh and it, it purely did it in pen and ink stipple because i'd seen it in a book and thought gee that looks really cool i'd like to try that so <laughs> did it take longer than you thought oh it took yeah it took weeks it took <laughs> I mean, only doing one day a week. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've not tried that, but I look at people doing it, and I'm not sure it's it's. I'm not sure my mind accepts that as being reasonable way for me to do art. So I kind of look at it thinking, I someday I'll try it. It's it's a really interesting way um, to create light tone and shade. Mm -hmm. I do really really like it, and again, it suits my mindset. Uh, and you work on such small areas at a time like you just it's in almost in some ways you almost work abstract because you're just working on an area bringing the tones right to to be able to get form and things like that mm -hmm. but then you've got to join it to the next area and the next area and the next area and then what i find is that at the end of the picture you then go over and adjust all of the areas so you get like sort of a 
seamless gradients and things like that. Huh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I do like I do like it, but it's so for a subject like that, so time consuming. Did you um what did you move to then after doing that lobster? Was there like interest like, oh wow, Craig does some really great work. I want to get him to do some other stuff? Like what happened? What was your next few animals that you did? So I actually went to the geology department and I was volunteering in there as well as zoology. So I was sort of doing the the two loves that I had in terms of science. Mm-hmm. A geology area, I was IDing, um, so identifying specimens from the Northern Territory of Australia of the Australian megafauna from fossils, uh, which was fantastic. And then they had a big uh, dinosaur exhibition. So the thing about Queen Victoria Museum is even though it's a regional Australian museum, they actually produce dinosaur fossil uh, dinosaur um, reconstructions and then they sell them to other museums all around the world. They've got a really great casting facility there. Oh, wow. They had their own dinosaur exhibition and they wanted um, some recreations of some of the mammals that were actually around at the time of the dinosaurs to scale. So I did some mammal reconstructions and actually painted them up uh, and they were sort of sitting at the feet of the dinosaurs to give an idea of scale between the dinosaurs and the mammals at the time. Oh, that was that must have been fun. I've done a couple of dinosaurs and I, I, I always want to do more. Like they're just... It's they're almost mystical beasts to be able to do them, but there's a lot of discussion in, among paleo artists, I think, about doing it right and how many feathers do we include nowadays and and things like that. And I feel like it's beyond my realm. I feel like if I put something out there, people would be like, "No, that's not. No, you're wrong." <laughs> there's um there's a Australian artist Peter Trussler. He he's a fantastic. He's he's both a. a bird artist or natural history artist doing subjects now he's done a few bird books and things like that but his his paleontological reconstruction paintings are absolutely amazing the amount of research that he goes into with the paleontologists is incredible he even did a he even did a painting where he was talking to the climate paleontologists about the angle of the sun so that he had the angle of the sun on the water and this dinosaur right for the time. Wow. So for those of you listening and you're out and about, I always say this, but I think it's 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 such a great way to follow up on the podcast. I have really good show notes. So anything that we talk about, any names we mention, any places that we mention, and some of the animals that Craig has talked about and will talk about, I include in the show notes. So when it's all said and done, uh, if your podcast player doesn't support it, go to the website. I'll mention that at the very end, and you can click on the links and explore things even further. But I'll have to find him and include him in the links as well. Oh, it'd be it'd be brilliant if people look him up because honestly, I think he's a under underrated artist. Uh, his work is phenomenal. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but at some point you went to spiders, and I don't know if there's something before spiders, but I think spiders is an interesting story. Yeah, what? Well, obviously, uh, all while I was at the museum volunteering, um, of course, one of the best ways to get a job in the museum is to be volunteering in a museum um, because you get seen and things like that. And it ended up getting a job as an attendant, so. It's basically semi-security customer service type role. Uh, you're obviously, you know, making sure people aren't touching artworks and things like that, um, as well as 
I suppose, giving people the information that they need about displays and things like that. Uh, and as spending so much time in the museum was inspiring, so I started uh, drawing a lot of um, the specimens there, so the mounted specimens, um, and I was showing them around to people. And the arachnologist, so the person that studies spiders, she actually saw me showing some artworks and and she um, she said, oh, my God, you can draw. And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> and she, I need you. And so she took me um, downstairs into her laboratory and started showing me uh, all of these drawings of um, different aspects of spiders. And she was doing a lot of research and description of new species. And any time a scientific paper is released of a new species, uh, there's always associated illustrations or I suppose nowadays it's probably um, digital photos as well that would go with the paper uh, showing the specific identifying features of a, of that species that um, defines it between other species or similar looking species or things like that. And the thing about these spiders that, that she was studying, a lot of them had same body form, same colour, um, same size you could not distinguish them just by eye alone uh, that they were different species they were actually going down and looking at the number of spines on legs and things like that so that was the levels that they were getting to to define this spe this animal is different from this animal this and this animal but one of the things wow. that they do do with insects is that the genitalia um, between species are quite distinct and that actually becomes one of the ways to identify between different species of spiders and also other things like butterflies and moths and stuff like that as well so they use the genitalia as well so I ended up did a few drawings for her of spider genitalia so that she could see if the drawings that I produced were something that was worthy to go with the research that she was doing to go into the paper that she was doing, describing the different species. Mm -hmm. And um, she was current. She at the time she was being funded out of the United States for the project that she was doing, and she applied to them. And I got put on for two years as a scientific illustrator, and I spent two years just drawing spider genitalia and a few other. <laughs> specific quirks of spiders <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome it um i'm sure that that your 10 year old self would laugh if you if you you told them you know what you're going to be doing in a few years oh <laughs> uh, honestly it was it was the best job like it was yeah um to be able to to be paid to go in each day and just uh, draw uh, a lot of microscope work, but just draw all day. And in fact, it made my productivity with what I was doing outside of work. I started producing more at the same time as well, because it, it was like inspiring to actually be paid to do art and then like produce more on the other side of it as well. So, yeah. So how long ago was that, that you were doing the spiders? Oh, uh, maybe it'd, it'd be like 17 years or so, I suppose. And so the pencils you were like at the time, if you're using pencil, are you using wooden pencils? I, I don't know if you're using mechanical. No, yeah. no, no. I was, I was just using wooden pencils. So they're all, um, all pencil highly shaded. I, I suppose maybe a bit of description about like what you would see in the in the microscope so 
the genitalia is quite often very transparent. So you can actually see all of the structures in layers in the actual part of the genitalia. So you can see different like um, tubes and things like that, but they're in layers. So you actually had to be able to show depth um, plus transparency as well in these shaded diagrams. And they had to look like what you were looking at basically through the mic microscope, not, not um, like, you know, this tube is highly defined. It's more this tube is sort of smudged because it's under this sort of translucent layer, if you know what I mean. So Right. Yeah, that would have been quite tricky to do. Um, you know, transparency and trying to show like an object below another transparent layer with uh, with graphite is is always challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I learned a lot. And every stage of every drawing, uh, I had to get a tick off from her that she, um, she basically approved each sort of stage as the drawing progressed so that it was showing what she wanted it to show because it had to go with the descriptions as well. That's incredible. That's a great, I mean, to, be, to get paid to do that for two years, I mean, what a better way to, to, to refine your skill. Yeah, yeah, it was it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, and it was it was a oh, massive ego is not the right word, almost confidence boost to be able to, you know, talk to somebody and say like I'm a, you know, scientific illustrator, like uh, straight up to be able to say that that's your job. Of course, then they always asked what you illustrated, and so you had the best conversation starter or stopper by saying spider genitalia. So, <laughs> I think if I got close to a dangerous spider, I wouldn't be too concerned whether it was male or female. It's am I going to die? <laughs> but I appreciate that. I mean, this is it's challenging, especially in research. I work in health research during the day, and um, researchers do amazing work and it is they're always chasing the money with grants it is not easy work so it's it's great that you're able to support somebody if, from that perspective yeah it was it was brilliant um and yeah interesting that you're talking about the grants because in the end that illustration job fell over because uh the funding from america stopped because of there was a there was an agreement between America and the Queen Vic Museum as to how long it would last and then the Queen Vic Museum was supposed to pick her up for a certain amount of time but of course that then didn't include me so the illustration stopped and then her project became a bit stop start because she was um, she was having to chase grant money uh, to keep the project going. And she was spending more time chasing grant money than she was doing the research. And in the end, it, it sort of just stopped altogether because she could not get the funding. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd hate to be a scientist and to be caught in that sort of eternal loop. Yeah, it's difficult. I've got my oldest daughter's in chemistry now, and I you know, always take a chance, an opportunity to speak to her about the challenges researchers have in kind of chasing down the money and, and being really good at grant writing and looking for opportunities and looking at ways to tell their story to these various agencies to make their work attractive. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's hard. It is really hard. And I see it happen with health researchers all the time, you know, where they want to do this grand thing, but they only have this much money, but they make it more next year. But, but that's good. I mean, that's a great experience. Did you, did you stay with scientific illustration after that? I actually stayed, well, I stayed with the style. Um, so I was still involved with the museum and I managed to be a part of a few group shows at a local gallery where I had some work up for um, display and on sale and in a couple of exhibitions as well. 
And I actually, because I, oh, for want of a better phrase, got bitten by the insect bug, I did, I did a lot of uh, research on insects, became absolutely fascinated with the whole order. Uh, they just, they are crazy, crazy amazing. But I started doing uh, these highly detailed insect drawings uh, and that's what I was exhibiting in the gallery. Yeah. So I stayed with the style for quite a while. I've done a few insects and I, I love them. Like they're, <laughs> I, I know some people freak out when they see my spiders, but um, I, I love them. Like for me as, as a, you know, I usually, I've done them in graphite and ink, but I, I think what's exciting and I, I, maybe you can speak to what it is about insects, but for me, it's the, the, there's so much variety in texture and form with such a small animal like it, it there's so much going on to help define what that is whether it's a dragonfly whether it's a spider um a cicada there's so much going on in that space and so for, from your perspective what is it about the insects like are you still is that something you're still compelled i mean you're focused heavily on birds now but do you still have a soft spot for uh, for insects yeah absolutely just to answer the first question first texture structure and form that they are the three things. Um, like you said, texture is amazing. And of course, a lot of the, the works that I was doing, I was doing under a stereo microscope. So you're actually seeing all the little pits in the carapace and things like that. They've actually got all little indentations and things that you just don't see by, you know, normal eye. But I was putting all that in and all the little hairs. But uh, structure and body form as well is quite amazing. One thing you might be interested in, Mike, I I um I started doing it's a really old scientific illustration style. Uh, it's um, carbon dust on clayboard. Have you done that? No. So, so you know what clayboard is, don't you? So I was basically getting a carbon pencil, and I was sanding down so that I'd get the the dust itself then I would get a brush and you'd brush onto the the clay board to start building up body form and to also build up the tones and then seal it with fixative you can't go heavy with the fixative though because if you go too heavy on clay board you actually destroy the surface then you get more um, dust on your brush you go over again make the darks a bit blacker seal it again do it again do it again and then start drawing in all the legs and the hairs and things like that and then for the final elements you can go in with a blade and you can just scrape away and reveal that crisp white of the clay to get your absolute crisp white highlights. I was doing illustrations like that um, of insects so highly highly detailed showing all of these little pits and everything and they all had a little scrape for a highlight and everything I'd spend two, 250 hours on an illustration that, that I was then exhibiting. Yeah. It's a time-consuming technique, but the results are highly, highly realistic. I'm going to have to take a look at that. I mean, I'm a sucker for trying new things, so I'm, I've made a note here right beside me, even though I'm going to hear this again when I edit, but uh, I'm going to be all over it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually a really old old school style of um, scientific illustration technique. So 
there's a book you might be interested in. It's called. It's from the Guild of Na, uh, the Guild of Natural History Illustrators. No, the Guild of Scientific Illustrators, and they've got this big tome which is basically the Bible for scientific illustration. And it shows all the different techniques, including that clayboard one. Hmm. Yeah, that's where I I learnt that technique, but I also learnt it by just trying it and doing it. But the results are amazing, absolutely amazing. You have to take a look at that. You got to invest some. You have to invest some time in it, though. That's the only problem. Yeah, I still have a massive soft spot for insects. Always. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could. Like, I I picked up a macro lens uh, recently, or in the last couple of years, and I just haven't done enough uh, photography of insects. But uh, I want to explore them a little bit more. I mean, I love butterflies, but I feel like they're show offs. Like, I kind of I, I want to get to the grasshoppers and the ants and the bees. But um, just seeing the structures of things like uh, like dragonflies are just, it's just beautiful. Weevils. Weevils and beetles are where it's at, to be honest. The, the difference in body forms that you see in beetles and in weevils as well is crazy. And like, if you can get yourself a stereo microscope as well, so then you can actually start getting getting in close and seeing those high-level details on them, the little hairs and spines and just the pitting in a surface, like the carapace can actually be just completely covered in little pits, which is just, yeah, just amazing. And you've done, like I noticed on your website, and I'll include a link at the end of the show, um, that you did some beetles with like pastels, right? Like you were using pastels as well to render those? Yep. So I, uh, as as part of, um, so I'd always done work in graphite right up, up to this time, apart from a little pen and ink where I'd done the stipple piece. And I, I did do insect pictures in stipple as well. So there's dragonflies and there's native wasps and things like that that I did in stipple as well. But I started playing around with pastels uh, just to introduce a bit of colour. Um, and partic- I, did a, I did a few ladybirds uh, because, again, variation in spots and colours showing different species and ladybirds highly popular as well. So, yeah, I, start- mm-hmm. I started using pastels to, um, to bring that colour in. Uh, I'm, I'm not adverse to exploring and trying, to be honest. Like, I, I explore and try different techniques, um, or I have done quite a lot through the years. Interesting. So you moved in through uh, scientific illustration. Uh, you, you did uh, the spiders. Kind of where did the path take you from there? Like, how did you, because there's, that was quite a, a time ago. And it seems like, you know, when I've read up on you, that you've only recently moved into where you are now as a matter of your state as an artist. What happened in that in that point in time? Did you move through different animals? Did you, you know, because I think we always think about kind of the struggling artist and that kind of thing. So how was that for you? It's it's a bit of a jump around story. I actually left art for a while. So while I was at the museum, um, this was a few years after the illustration job finished and I was back doing the attendant work, I got the opportunity to go into a management position there. And that obviously, when you go into management, the time investment becomes um, a lot of your personal time as well. And I actually became very career orientated. So I, I ended up doing a graduate diploma of public sector management because the museum was actually run by the um, local council in Launceston. So yeah, I, I did this graduate diploma in 
public sector management, um, stream through management in the museum, ended up quite high. Then not really doing any art at that point in time because I was just, I was focused on career, I suppose. Then I went to um, DePipwi, so that's the Department of Primary Industries, Parks, Water and Environment, so that's a state government um, department. And I, again, I was working in the environmental area in a management position there. Then I went to a not-for-profit environmental organisation and I was essentially the CEO of that organisation. Um, and I did a lot of what we were talking about before of writing grants, <laughs> looking for money, basically, <laughs> um, because a lot of those organisations run on a shoestring. And then when that position finished up and I was casting around looking for jobs, I, I got a, a position as a project manager um, with a, an employment agency, but they're working under a federal government contract uh, basically uh, working to get people off the dole, which is unemployment benefits here in um, unemployment support in Australia. Uh, so getting people off of the unemployment support and into jobs. And I was working as a project manager for, it was projects to give people skills basically to help them get to get um, jobs. So that would have been 2017 when I was doing that job. So there was quite a few years where I was pretty career orientated, not really doing much in the way of art. I might have dipped my toes into, you know, a couple of pieces here or there, but not really doing a whole heap. And while I was doing that job, um, I didn't really agree with the philosophies of the organisation and how it worked. Everything was about numbers and money and forcing people to do things and and i to me it, it's not about actually helping the people a lot of these people have intrinsic background issues or health issues or social issues or any of those sorts of things which you know realistically in a perfect world you'd be you'd be looking to provide support to get around some of those things so that people can get a job and move forwards and those sorts of things. And I found that really, I, I just found the whole circumstance really hard and really depressing and um, I found it affected me personally. So I, uh, while I was in that job, I, to survive that job, I started back into my drawing and painting again, uh, started, started my Instagram while I was in that job, got my website up and going, uh, and I used to take pieces with me to work and work on them at lunchtime while I was at work, and that was the best one hour of the day, to be quite honest. So, yeah, that's that's how I got back to my art, was like a really ordinary job that was um, affecting me personally. So, yeah. That's good that art brought you back and, and, and saved you a little bit, because uh, I, I, I know how hard that can be working in that kind of environment um it's it's tough and and i also can i, I think I, I can identify with you in, in having that lunch hour to have a book with you and a pencil and just being able to shut down the world and just follow that graphite on the paper or lead it it's a special moment to be able to have that opportunity as an artist to be able to do that in the middle of a busy day uh, managing all the other stuff so that's that's good that you found it again yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and my, the first subjects that I did were um, wildlife, wildlife orientated. So obviously 
you know, if I was taking work, uh, taking pieces with me to work, it had to be something transportable. So I was taking uh, pieces to work. I started working in colour pencil, um, quite detailed pieces in colour pencil. Um, I'd take pen and ink to do stipple pictures and, and graphite, obviously, as well. But during this time, I, I um, outside of work, I started pushing into painting um, and painting in acrylic. And I'd never really, I'd done a bit of painting when I was at the museum, a bit of gouache. Um, so I'd do mm -hmm. colour background and then gouache over the top. But I hadn't, I'd, I'd done the, I think I'd done a couple of pieces in acrylic, a couple of birds for the gallery, but I hadn't really done much since. So I really started expanding in painting in acrylic during those few years um, that I was at that, at that job uh, and started exploring that as well. That's cool. We'll have to come back to that because I want to ask you about the acrylics. Um, at this point, you're an artist. This is your mostly full-time gig. So at what point... What caused you to flip that switch and say goodbye? This is my this is my path, and I'm taking it. Basically, it was a decision of um, personal mental health to leave, and just just to pull up stumps and go. So I pulled up stumps and left, and um, I spent I suppose about eighteen months of really dedicated just drawing, painting, drawing, painting, drawing, painting, all of that sort of stuff uh, with. Uh, basically we were running on my wife's wage which and it was it was a that was a tough 18 months um, tough for her because uh, her wage was only fairly modest it made it tough on the home and things like that as well but uh, those 18 months I think developed all my technique basically I explored so so much different stuff during that time and then it was it was probably during that time that um, her workplace uh, offered us the contract to, her and I, the contract to clean the place, so a cleaning contract out of ours. And mm -hmm. um, she actually worked two jobs there for a while doing that. She'd do her normal job during the day and then she'd clean with me of an evening and I'd be drawing and painting all day and then do the cleaning of an evening as well. And if it wasn't for the fact that we had that, that was bringing in sort of a regular amount of money, um, supplementary to what she was earning, of course, a mm -hmm. amount of like a regular wage for me, um, the art probably would have fallen over. Yeah, I'm actually still doing that cleaning job myself at the moment. So I draw and paint all day, and then I do the cleaning out of hours. So that provides me with like a background base salary almost and then my art tops up over the top of that nice that's dedication hats off to you and your and and your wife for <laughs> that that that's that's tough it is it is tough and couldn't have, i absolutely couldn't have done it without her support honestly um and it's nice to see some of the rewards from that hard you know year and a half um right. come back and 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 make things obviously better for us now but it's it's nice that she sort of got some of those rewards come back as well and to be able to see them as well that the time was worth it so when you made this decision you have kids yeah i've got two kids so how how did they handle this transition when you went through that going from your job to this to your wife and you working together and doing the cleaning like how what did the kids think of that whole experience with what what dad was taken on 
Um, they found it difficult. So they, let's think, 2017. So my daughter would have been about 16. My son would have been 18. Obviously for them, seeing me go from, I suppose, in air quotes, higher profile jobs to then no job for a period of time to then doing cleaning, I suppose, was a bit, bit of a weird sort of jump for them. But again, I think that they now see with what's happening with the things that I've had happen over the last couple of years with where my art's gone and and also with the things that I've got coming up now as well, um, they're, they're actually seeing seeing that that whole thing was worth it. And, and also being able to have that conversation with them about, you know, um, I suppose it's a bit of sacrifice to be able to do something that you really want to do and that it is worth doing something that you really want to do as well. You only get one turn around the track. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, being someone who's who I am, where I've got a day job and I'm doing this on the side and that kind of thing, uh, both the podcast and the art. I, I, I feel there's a huge lesson with, with kids being able to see that, being able to see that, you know, curiosity never dies and changes an opportunity that we have at any point in life it, it doesn't have to happen you don't have to be all geared up and ready to choose what degree you're going to go into and that's going to somehow determine your life for the next 50 years that there's opportunities out there and you have to be open to them and you have to be looking for them and you have to be willing to to challenge yourself and i think it's great we always talk about artists needing networks and i think you know it sounds like with with, with your wife and your kids that you had the perfect network to help you transition from where you were to where you needed to be as a matter of kind of re-careering yourself. <laughs> it was done It was done with a lot of support from all of them. Um, you know, there were hard times through it all, like, um, you know, temper's frayed at times, and when times are tough, that happens. But um, I have to say that between all three of them, I mean, I've, I've got commission work out of all three of them because of them spruiking my work during that time and after that time. So, like, that, you know, if if... That's not support. What is? <laughs> mm -hmm. You're working now, as you said, full time as an artist, and then you're doing uh, this other job in the evenings. Let's talk about kind of what where you are now, because if you go to your Instagram, you see these wonderful, just beautiful bird renderings that you've done on the pages of books, which I think is just incredible. Can you talk about those, and then we'll dance around a little bit some of the tools you use and and what you like to use and that kind of thing. But how are you rendering those? And uh, it just seems it's it, it's a page from the same book. Like each <laughs> each page represents is is coming out of the same book. So I don't know if you have four hundred birds lined up or whatever the case. But maybe if you can talk about how you how how you create those pieces because it's it's really a showcase on your Instagram. Yeah, thank you. I'll look. I appreciate those words so much. And I have to say that um, some of the support from um, people on Instagram just about my work too, the, the things that people say is just uh, astounding, um, the connection that they have. The pieces on the books, I'll, I'll step back from it a little bit. So I actually find the books in um, op shops. Do you know what an op shop is? It's like a, um, it's like a charity shop. So people okay. donate items to a not-for-profit organisation they then sell those items on and the money goes to people in need for... Like a thrift shop is... is yeah, okay. But they're run by community organisations, charitable organisations that are raising money for people that are homeless um, or, you know, in dire straits, 
things like that. Mm-hmm. I always, I, my wife and I, we, we go to those shops quite often because you scour around and you find some good bargains, but you find, you know, you're also buying stuff uh, that's being repurposed instead of being thrown away. And I always go and look at books first. I'm, I'm a bit of a book nut. I've got a bit of a collection of books and, and I'll always go and look at books and I'm always looking for interesting things. And I started collecting some old books and I collected a few field guides, different field guides of Australian birds. Um, and the thought was uh, I, had, I had done a couple of pieces on book pages in 2017 and the idea was that the bird always has to relate to the page so it can be a direct relationship um, with the page like a field the field guide pages it'll always be done on the page that describes the bird and i can mm-hmm. always allow the name of the bird to show through on the page so that's a pretty direct relationship but to take it a bit further that those pieces are sort of, I suppose, a homage to the people that produce field guides. So those people that produce field guides are quite often doing every illustration of every bird. Sometimes people are writing descriptions and things like that as well. Those books are a piece of art in themselves. So it's a real homage to the people that actually create those field guides and have done created field guides back in the past that you look at the big tomes that were produced and things like that. The other angle that I'll use is that there might be a more oblique relationship. Uh, So I've used like an old physics textbook and I've used the chapters on sound and I'll put songbirds onto those those pages with the relationship between bird song and sound and wavelength and things like that. Or I've, Hmm. I've put a swallow on a page with all of these architectural drawings again because swallows are quite often building their nests on the you know the eaves of houses and things like that as well so try and try and find a relationship between the page and the bird itself whether it's direct or non-direct yeah no i think that's brilliant i mean to find the inspiration for you to do it and the guiding principle now everyone i know who's listening to this is going to go check your instagram and not only look at the birds but read the text behind it so i think that's brilliant um so are you when you're rendering these are you doing like a light pencil sketch and then are you coming in with uh like with with acrylic or with colored pencil or so how are you working those those pieces so I cut the page out of the book first, so that's going to make people hurt. It does hurt. It did hurt me at the start, but I suppose if you think about those books bought in those in those op shops, if they don't sell, they go to landfill. Basically, they're not going anywhere else at that point. They're being thrown out. So I'm giving that page a new chapter in its in its life from what it had with the book. Nice. So I cut the page out. And I glue it to a piece of archival mat board using an archival glue. So that gives the page some rigidity. Then I do, I do the drawing on a separate page and then I transfer that to the page. Because I don't want to do too much sketching around on the page because some of these pages, I mean, I've got books from 1850s. You can't do any erasing or anything like that. On- <laughs> right. 
but the paper just won't it won't take it. So it's the drawing's got to be transferred, and, and you don't mark around with it with it at that point. Uh, and then I and then I start painting with acrylic. So I always do a raw umber underpainting, um, a tonal underpainting. I find that raw umber, I, I like the neutrality of it. Uh, I know a lot of people underpaint in burnt umber, but I find that too warm. I like raw umber's got a, a nice neutral for me to then work, work over the top of. Um, mm -hmm. That tonal underpainting, I try and show a bit of light and shade and obviously... Uh, markings and things like that, a bit of feather direction, depending on the bird, I suppose. And then I start using acrylics over the top of that. I tend to use my acrylics very thin, uh, so quite often they're, they're quite transparent. I thin them down with a glazing medium and water, so a mix of the two, and gradually build up layers. Um, sometimes the painting of the bird is still quite transparent, even in the finished state, and you can still see some of the text through sometimes. Hmm. That's a really organic process in deciding what looks good and what doesn't look good. So if the text is too domineering, still I'll keep working it up. Uh, sometimes I'll work it up, not quite in pasto, but the layers are actually quite thick paint and you, you can actually see brush work. Uh, in the in the layer of the paint that actually gives some of the texture of the feathers as well. And I noticed on your website, I think I saw that you, you um, were happy about using uh, open from uh, golden. Is that what you're still choosing? Because that's so maybe for the listener explaining what's the difference between a golden acrylic, which is the company, versus the golden open series. Maybe you can explain why you went with the open. Yeah, I I went with the open because. It gives uh, the the drying time's actually quite slow, and I find that I can mix a color on my palette, and I can come back the next day, and that color is still reworkable. So a little bit of medium into that color, and I can still use that again, which for an acrylic is amazing because most acrylics dry within a minute or two. So I th and I think that may be because I'm I'm quite heavy in the use of the um, the medium with the paint, so it's really slowing down that drying time. Mm -hmm. and the paint itself has a has a slower drying time. So what I do find with the open paints is that there is a certain level of blending that you get on the page when you're layering up cut colors as well. And I find that by that blending and painting quite almost wet in wet in some ways that I get some of that feather texture that comes through and also some of that real subtle color shift that you get on things like parrots and stuff like that in their feathers you know how their feathers sort of grade in color so it allows me to get some of those shifts without actually doing lots of glazes or things like that I can get it in maybe a layer even sometimes yeah interesting so are you spending a lot more time in acrylics today versus pencil or graphite um like what's 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 your muse right now <laughs> is it is it the acrylics absolutely yeah yeah i've i've turned myself more to a painter what i will will do is i'll do uh small graphite pieces on a, a gray tonal paper 
Um, I'll do birds on that with um, graphite pencil and use like a white charcoal for pure white highlights with the grey paper providing a medium tone. They're not quite sketches and they're not overworked graphite pieces. They're somewhere in the middle and I do offer them through the gallery that I have um, pieces at as like a, I suppose it's a, it's a different price point of work. I don't do enough of the graphite work now. I need to do more. Yeah. Do you miss it? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. But I've got so many commissions and things coming out of my ears. I just don't have time. <laughs> I, I do put the paints away, though, because it gets to the point where I've just got to draw for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but graphite for me is, is something I just, I need to come back to every so often. I don't know, like it's, no matter what I've been doing and all the, like I've got acrylics over here that I'm going to pop open for the first time this weekend. Um, and that's, so I was, that's why I was asking all the acrylic questions. Um, but there is something really special about graphite, like uh, a piece, one piece of paper and one pencil and leave the eraser behind. You don't really need it. And just going in and, and, and it's just wonderful. It just feels special. It really does. I, I love it, and it was my medium of choice for years and years and years and years and years. And I do need, I do need to do, I do need to do more of it. I, I was doing some highly, highly rendered and highly detailed wildlife pieces in graphite, um, showing all fur details and things like that. I mean, I did a, I did a half-size thylacine in in graphite, which. Um, was just a crazy undertaking now looking back on it it was it was massive um and it was it was like four or five layers to get the proper tones in the hair and everything but there's something about it there is something about graphite yeah are you still using wooden pencils or what's what's your graphite choice yeah i still do i i use the uh stadler mars lumograph yeah, still using wooden pencils, although I do have some clutch pencils that I do use as well, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't say still, like it's, you know, you got to park the horse and drive the car. It's not that kind of, but it's, you know, I use wooden. Um, I, I love my my Pentel pencils. Um, I, I use clutch pencils if I'm doing a larger piece because they're nice to roll over on the edge. But it's uh, it's nice to have so many graphite options rather than just... You know the the Mars uh, the Lumograph Black, which has a uh, uh, less a little bit less sheen and a little bit consistent from two B up to eight B is nice. I use those as well. Yeah, I discovered those only a couple of, only a year or so ago actually, and um, yeah, they've changed my pencil pieces now because I I didn't quite like the really high sheen that you'd get when you'd overwork to try and get those darks, um, but that yeah they they are lovely. <laughs> yes they are <laughs> do you um so you're doing acrylics a lot of acrylics now do you have you ever tried oil no haven't tried it the reason for choosing acrylic for these book pages is that the the variation in texture and sheen that you can find in those old pages is like well there's so much variation so much variation so i didn't want to use watercolor because I do actually in some of the old books, so from the 50s and 60s, and I even have some from the 1920s, I like painting on the photo pages as well. 
And you, you, you're not going to be able to use a watercolor or something like that on one of those photo pages. They're just, it's just not going to, um, it's not going to hold in the same way that you can with acrylic. So I really like that you can use acrylic across all of those different surfaces. And that's why it was my choice for choice of paint for the book pages. One thing I should have mentioned about the golden paints too, that I really, really like is the vibrancy of the color that they have. The colour in those paints is so vibrant. It's um, absolutely amazing for rendering all of those colours of the birds and things like that that I do. And that, that's another reason for, for choosing the gold paint. Yeah, I'm, I'm not... Um, yeah, I haven't tried oils. And I'm not... I'm a little bit intrigued, but I'm not that interested yet. Uh, I need to kind of get acrylic sorted out. But... I wanted to ask you about brushes because I, I think I saw in one of your videos, it looked like you were using a really small rigger. Like, do you use, is there a set, like two or three brushes that you're using now in, in rendering these birds? So I'm, I'm using the um, Neef Taclon um, painting uh, brushes. Um, I will use like a, a rigger, I suppose you'd call it. Some of them are, are labeled script. Um, they get a Okay, yeah. They get a really nice point. Uh, generally, probably most of the paintings I'm doing in a size zero brush, but I will go down to 20 zero, uh, which is which is pretty fine. Um, but, you know, you think about the size of the pages that I'm doing most of the work on, which is on the field guides, they're about the they're about the size of a um, hardback novel page, I suppose. So they're not massive. So, you know, small brushes to get the details. I will use some what are they called like the wedges or something like that wedge or dagger yeah dagger a dagger that's okay. it yeah i do i do use some dagger brushes as well uh particularly when i'm when i'm doing more blending work to get the softness and some of that mixing of tone like in a parrot or a kookaburra or something like that so again it depends on the bird and it depends on how their feathers lay on their their body and the colors and those sorts of things but i will use the a larger dagger just to get some of that soft blending between the between the colors so can i ask you like i talked about this on the last podcast about reference photos and where to find them and that kind of stuff so for your birds what are you, what are you using as reference photo, photos is it ones you've taken is it is it ones that you've uh, you know like where do you source that kind of material and obviously you're focused on birds within your region uh yeah so most yeah i do a lot of tasmanian birds a lot of australian birds they tend to be most most of what i do because uh the audience that i'm selling to in terms of the galleries that i'm using like it's a majority australian audience um Mm -hmm. I, I have done birds from overseas and that as well, mostly for commissions, but I have done a few pieces um, for myself, but that they don't resonate with the galleries that I'm showing with here. <laughs> right. I source my photos, so some I'll take myself. I don't get out enough, though, to be honest. I, I've actually found I must have 10 photographers that I use that I've found through Instagram and I've approached them and asked if I could use their photos and, and all of them have been um, just so kind in allowing me to use their photos. Uh, ranging from uh, highly gifted amateur photographers through to professional. And, and it's all done with no charge. So 
yeah, no charge for use of the photos. But I do make certain that when I post um, up on social media, I always reference the photographer that I've used the the photo to as my reference yeah. for the painting. That's brilliant. I, I think that's. Um, I talked about that. Like that's, I think, a great strategy. I used one in uh, Australia for some work I did, and uh, they're posting incredible photos. Like you know, as you say, amateur right up to professionals, and it's exposure for them, and it's uh, it's an opportunity for us to learn and to to create. So I think that's that's cool. I'm glad that that's the way you're approaching it. Absolutely. It's the only way that you like. I think that. Um, in, I'll also give the, I'll also give my photographer all the photographers I use. I'll also give them a shout out as well. So I'll randomly do shout outs through social media and that just to you know get some people to go and look at some of these absolutely amazing images that they produce. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's a really good strategy to actually connect yourself with a photographer and just ask. I have asked other photographers through um, Flickr. A couple of them wanted. I suppose, a pay rate back that just wasn't suitable with what I'm selling the artworks for. It wasn't, didn't make economic sense, so I just didn't use those photos. I have also paid for stock photos as well, depending on the subject that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's an outlay of money, but, you know, you've, you've then got that reference to use down the track as well. So, yeah. True enough. Have you done any digital work? No. Uh, it's... It hasn't been in my wheelhouse. Um, I suppose it's it's like you saying about the wooden pencil and things like that. I really like the the old school. You know, get your get your hands dirty, basically, be able to touch and feel it. Uh, it may be something that I do down the track, but I think it would purely be for compositional work. I don't think I'd be looking to do finished work at least at this at this point in time. Anyway, is there something you'd like to try that you haven't? With regard to your art, like you've—that's a good question. You you seem to have explored. I mean, beyond the oil painting, you've explored a lot. Is there something that intrigues you? Um, I mean, I I'd, I would like to do some large, large scale pieces, like uh, you know, go back to a couple of pieces on canvas or things like that. I have I have got a massive. I can't remember the size of it, but it is massive canvas sitting down in the garage at the moment waiting for paint um i just i haven't quite worked out what i'm going to do with that yet so yeah i i also would like to do a book to be honest i'd like to i'd like to be involved in some sort of project around a book with with the art and things like that so would you would you think about some kind of like a birding book or would you would you be looking at like a like a fictional piece or children's or would you be focused more on kind of the science and, and the accuracy of the images i suppose my stuff has developed from where i used to draw and paint every feather to being a little bit more representational now um i call it like it's it's realism with a with a painterly look i suppose so i've moved away from being i don't like to say not accurate but it's a little bit more representational now I think in some ways uh, they they do look, mm -hmm. but I think if I was going to do something, there there would be some sort of science aspect involved with it. I'm not sure quite how that would how that would work yet. Yeah, it's mm. I have got a concept, and I have put feelers out 
um, for developing this concept into a book. And it's been well received so far, but I need to look at, I'm not quite certain how I would even publish at this point. Well, I mean, the thing is, I think this is the advantage in us, you know, being on Instagram and, and other places is you've got a decent following that if you decide to, to spin something up as a Kickstarter, then you've got, you know, almost 12,000 followers. There's an opportunity there to leverage them against whatever you're considering. Because I think a lot of people think about Kickstarters, but they come into it with like 500 or 1,000 people on social media. And that's not the kind of number of people that you need. The Kickstarter will not succeed if you just put it into the Kickstarter website and wait for things to happen. So I'm excited to see what you're going to do. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I'll have to discuss it with you later on. You might want to be involved because I'm involving people in my in my audience in it. So say no more. Interesting. We'll have a conversation about it <laughs> for sure. So I wanted to kind of talk about the the idea of making a business of this. And if you can, because you've it's fairly recent that you've kind of transformed into, you know, the online shop and everything else. How has that been for you, and what lessons would you share with somebody else who's thinking about doing the same thing? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I'm still developing it, to be honest. Like it's still a work in progress. So uh, at the moment, I'd be making I'm making above the average of what the average air quotes artist earns in Australia at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going up each year. The last couple of years, it's significantly jumped. Uh, at the moment, I'm only selling originals. So I need, I know that you've talked a lot in your podcasts about um, diversifying income streams. And this is where I, I need to start taking the next steps in how I diversify my income streams and to what else I'm going to be providing as product, how, however product looks and then building building on the momentum I've got just from the sale of originals at the moment. I think if I was going to offer any advice, I think it would be uh, get strength in, in a stream before you start pushing down the next stream and the next stream and the next stream. I think it, it might be... Oh, look, I don't know. That, it's, it's a difficult one because I only have one stream at the moment, so... Selling originals is hard work. Like I produced over a hundred original pieces last year. Um, that's like, you know, that was one every three days or something like that I was producing. So that's really grinding hard and you grind hard for the whole year. And that's like at the price point that I'm selling at at the moment, it's still not enough to, to live off that yet. You still need that supplementary income. So maybe ask me in five years. <laughs> <laughs> I I want you to get to it in one year. <laughs> so what are you thinking? Like, have you, I mean, one of the other questions I had for you too is, have you thought about non-art income? So in the sense of, have you thought about teaching? Yeah, I have. I have explored that. I actually got asked to do an artist teaching workshop with a whole heap of artists over on the mainland uh, this year. But they knocked me back because I had no experience. So, um, so they actually approached me. But then, because I didn't have teaching experience, I, they sort of said like it's too big a jump. Basically, I do need to get that up and running. I'd like to do that. I think that I've probably got enough confidence in my technique now to be able to show um, how that technique can produce pictures 
like I produce or whatever, or to help people develop their own techniques. So basically build on what I'm doing. Um, but it's, it's definitely, um, definitely something that I've been considering. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be awesome. I think it's so unique, your style to be able to sit down with a group of people and just go through it. Um, it's accessible. It's interesting. Uh, especially if you just did the book thing, like, um, I, I think, you know, you, you come to this class and maybe they bring their own tools, maybe they don't, but you have to bring an old book. <laughs> like, I just think that's, or maybe you just supply the pages, but I think that that kind of experience, whether it's like a weekend or two or three days, just starting out with one, I think would be uh, would be wonderful for people in, in your area to, to be able to reach out and try this. Because I know people that would be all over trying to do this um, in person, so... Yeah, I don't think you'd have any problem. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's that's um, that I've been considering. And the other thing I've been considering is, you know, whether or not I try and start some sort of online tutorial sort of style of thing as well, whether it's something written or or what. I'm not quite certain yet. Yeah, but it's definitely like I suppose the upshot of everything is that where I've got things to at this point is that it's ready for that next step to be able to, you know, add some more income streams into it. Now that you've got some confidence in the, the original product that you've got there and, and a bit of a fun mm -hmm. with it. I wanted to ask you this question because I, I don't know if you've heard me talk about this. What do you think of talent versus skill? This has come up in a few of the episodes of, of my podcast where Talent doesn't really exist. <laughs> it's it's about skill, and and I, I think it's encouraging to hear that for people, especially later in life, who decide they want to come back to their creativity, that because it's not a talent, but rather a skill you need to work on, that there's opportunity, there's, there's a chance. And what's your feeling on that? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um... I mean, there, there is the classic book, Talent is Overrated. Have you read that? I haven't. I listened to it as an audio book when I was painting. And it's that it's, it works on the premise of the, you know, 10,000 hours to master something, basically. I can attest to the fact that that 18 months that I just spent drawing and painting every day, pretty much, or, you know, almost every day, that time just pushed my skill technique and style so far by the end of that 18 months that it, it had progressed so far and I had so much more confidence in I suppose it produces a confidence in how you use whatever material you're using because you've got all of that experimentation behind you I the interesting thing about talent is that I don't think necessarily it's talent. I think that there's a propensity for somebody to have an interest in something and to be obsessive about it and to spend that time. Whereas if you don't have the interest, then you're not going to you're not going to spend the time as well, shall we say? That's that's probably how I see it. Yeah, I I agree. I, yeah, I think people are are trying to like you have to be interested in being a creative and you have to be curious and you you have to work at it and that's not equal to talent so i think that's that's always been the challenge i've had because i've never 
taken any art training except a workshop I did three, four years ago, four years ago. Um, that's the only training I did. And it was a workshop, three-day workshop on pencil. But, you know, you're around these artists who've been doing it their whole life. And uh, so it, it, it is challenging. But, you know, seeing your success and feeling like I've had some degree of success the last few years, it's possible for anyone to do this if you work at it, if you take yourself seriously, if you're curious, if you experiment. I love that you've experimented with with uh, the clay board and, and all of that stuff in the past and that you've, you know, you tried gouache and it didn't work for you, so you moved to acrylic. And um, I love that opportunity because you're now doing something different than, you know, what would you think that older version of yourself or the younger version of yourself who was doing pencil would think of your acrylic work now? I'm not sure you would have saw that necessarily coming. No, I probably, probably would have been amazed by it. The funny thing is, like I say that I haven't, I haven't painted, but I mean, now th this is where the nerd in me comes out, but <laughs> I've actually spent a good couple of decades painting miniature war game figures in acrylic. So like 20 odd years. So I have been painting, but it just hasn't been paint on paper or paint on, you know, canvas or anything like that. So it has been there, but it just hadn't come out at the time. Artwork was always pencil until, until you know, recently. Yeah, that's an admirable uh, hobby because uh, Superman does it too, right? Um, Henry Cavill. Yeah, but I mean, there's a yeah. there's a real skill to be being able to paint, you know, eyes on a, a miniature that's only an inch high, you know, two mm -hmm. centimeters high, twenty five mil. I mean, I. I do a lot of historical figures, uh, Napoleonic War stuff. So you're actually painting uniforms correct to what they were at the time and they're highly detailed and they're, they're still layered. Like I still layer paints and blend and do all of that sort of stuff. So it sort of was, a, it was, a, it was going to happen at some stage anyway. I think I was going to put uh, paint on paper. Yeah. Yeah, I think people d don't realize the connections between some of the hobbies that maybe we've been doing for some time that could be applied to something else. And, you know, in, in thinking about that, you know, you've done a lot of this acrylic work now with the birds, like that is your feed right now on Instagram. What do you think your work's going to look like when you go back to graphite for a piece or two? Do you think it's going to change? Do you think you're going to look at it differently? Uh, I think I'll probably look at it maybe not as highly detailed as the things that I was doing, maybe, maybe making it a little bit more... Uh, looser in style I, that's that's my feeling on it anyway yeah so when I've gone back and done some smaller sketches and things like that they've they have got a looser style they're they're a little bit more uh, representational than than um you know trying to draw every hair or those sorts of things is there a favorite animal that you like to draw it's birds it, it is okay and is there a favorite bird i knew you were going <laughs> to ask the question and it's a horrid question <laughs> look there's one that i've done a lot of and it's something that i actually drew when i was a kid and i still i'll still do them now and we see them in our garden and that's the superb fairy wren it's um just a small wren it's got an upright tail and they've got this brilliant reflective um blue cap blue cheeks and they've got a bit of a blue bib as well it's sort of reflective a bit like the way the hummingbirds have the 
um, mm -hmm. collars that reflect the light, but um, it's just an electric blue. It doesn't have the range of colors that the hummingbirds have. Yeah. But they've got they've got a quite complex social dynamic actually. So I read a bit about the you know obviously anything that I was going to have was going to have that research associated. <laughs> so can I ask you a question about the wren? Because we have I love wrens. We we've got a wren that comes every year, one or two. I, it's hard to say because what they do, what the male does, is he he builds a nest in like six houses, and then he screams at the top of his lungs before I'm awake every morning to tell all the female birds of uh, female wrens i've created some great places for you please pick one does your wren do the same thing i don't think so no okay they are they're not so our wrens and your wrens are actually not from the same family they're different and that okay that's come from that's come from you know at the time of exploration where they're using names of birds that they know to then name birds in you know the new country yeah i'm gonna have to investigate this further now like something i've not gone down is is your experience with this is the science side as deep as i should around uh, the subjects i draw and paint so i'm gonna have to do that a little bit more but uh yeah the birds are i mean they're beautiful like so many people are drawn to the colors or the, or, or their activities but there's they're so complex and they're so smart um, and, and personalities, lovely subjects to draw or paint. I, um, I couldn't help myself once, once I decided that birds was going to be the thing that I do, I started going pretty heavy on the research and I, I read a bit about, um, bird intelligence and they rank, they rank some birds up, um, with the primates basically in their level of intelligence. They're just wired differently. So we actually find it a bit hard to, to understand and translate in terms of behavior and that their brains are wired differently when they when they actually look at the brains and the way that the brains work they work different to ours but also obviously there are similarities but they they're just they're only sort of starting to understand how that works now but yeah the level of cognition up there with some primates which is absolutely incredible yeah i know crows are supposed to be crazy brilliant there was a a recent YouTube video I watched where I was like, because we have crows here all the time, and this woman's like, you know, I think she leads with, I'll teach you how to train a crow, like how you can feed a crow. <laughs> it's, it's such a silly video because she's like, find a crow, give it food, get closer to it, you're done. <laughs> like it was just such a silly <laughs> instructional video. But I'm really excited about, you know, observing these animals much more closely than I have in the past. I agree. Well, bird watching is a massive habit. Um, that's grown uh, since lockdowns and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I I uh, got into doing our bird count here, where we do a backyard bird count, things like that, as in in Australia. But just yeah, watching the behaviours of the birds, the same birds that come back year after year, and just watching some of those behaviours sort of change a bit and things like that as well. Yeah, it's quite amazing. But uh, the Australian magpie, which they can live up to about thirty years old. They have been known, so they've actually got facial recognition and their magpies here in Australia are known to swoop people every year during nesting season. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about 60 people a year actually lose an eye from the birds. So they will actually hit you in the, in the face and the head. 
but they'll only do it to certain people and it's normally people that are perceived as some sort of threat to the nest and they have shown that the bird was swooping somebody that person didn't left the area and didn't come back for 10 years so they came back after a decade the bird recognized them and swooped them again it actually recognized them picked them out from the other people so they said that that's crazy and they even did experiments where they were using masks so they were getting pe- they were creating masks that looked like certain people and the birds would swoop certain people with certain masks because they they just recognize facial features it's crazy well i was i, I had uh, beth and burton on here who has a podcast um she's brilliant and uh, she was talking about magpies and talking about that there's a pile of sticks where the magpies nest and people pick up a stick from one pile and walk down the street and then deposit it in another pile just to kind of protect yourself from these magpies but maybe somebody should should find the people the bird doesn't bother and just make those masks and have them be the magpie masks that people wear when they go out and about. It'd simplify things, wouldn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it would. (laughs) Or maybe just don't be perceived as a threat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly, they don't do it in Tasmania, though. So we're separated from the mainland by stretch of water, being an island state. But, yeah, that behaviour is not in the magpies here and they're not they're a little bit uncertain as to why that is so so what kind of goals do you have for yourself for the next year or two is there anything you want to share with that i'm working at the moment it looks like i could have a reasonably large exhibition at the end of the year um over 20 odd pieces uh locally which is pretty cool and i've also been approached to do a a tutorial article in um, International Artist Magazine this year as well. Wow. Very cool. The book plan is probably the one that I've got sitting on the back burner at the moment that I'd like to go forward with a bit as well. So I need to I need to just get a bit of time to, to um, invest in that, in producing a bit of material. So then I've got something to sell against, I think. Yeah. Nice. What do you think has been the best advice you've ever received along your creative journey? Yeah, it, not not so much advice that I've received, but something I heard in a podcast. So it's actually an entrepreneurial business podcast called BizBuds, and uh, they they deal with a lot of creatives. They a lot of um, the business information that they talk about is for people in a creative field. Uh, but very entrepreneurial. And one of the things that they talked about was niching down. Um, so it's actually finding your niche and finding your audience within that niche and being able to then own that niche. And at the time when I had done that 18 months of really hard, you know, painting lots of different things, drawing lots of different things, I even did lino prints, lots of different wildlife subjects. And the book page stuff was becoming the thing that I was starting to focus on. I was still doing different wildlife on book pages as well. And then I'd listen to that podcast and it was like, no, I'm just going to do birds on book pages. I'm like going to really narrow down that niche and make it as narrow as I can because that then becomes my brand and then I can lever a whole lot of things off of that. Mm-hmm. I think that was that has been the key point 
in going forwards in terms of um, my art and the business. And it's actually developed my art and and it's it's even though it's a narrow niche, there are still actually ways that you can bend the confines of it to allow creativity and things like that. It's not to stifle creativity. It's more about branding and being able to market around that. And It's not so much advice that I received, uh, but it's something that I heard. And, and that has been the most probably important bit of information, I think. Yeah. A little bit different Excellent. to receiving advice, but yeah. No, I, like, I think that's important. It's, it's a matter of, of understanding your brand, developing your brand. You can change things. You know, it's finding your style, it's developing your brand, and it's wonderful to see your page reflect that and for you to be comfortable with who you are as an artist and, and the page reflects exactly what you're saying. So I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting for people, if, if they're interested, to go into my Instagram, go back to the start and just see, like you can actually see that it was fairly disjointed, all the things that I was jumping around to. Mm-hmm. Now it's got, there's a consistency and there's an obvious there's an obvious brand and there's obviously something to market from in that as well. Like it just gives it a really nice consistency. Yeah. If you want the jumping around, check out mine because <laughs> I still jump around a lot, but. But, but so that's, that's necessary too. It's necessary to spend that time. It's necessary to spend that time exploring. Um, I just think maybe it's something that people like want to, you know, find their style air quotes, too quickly you need to spend that time experimenting and find the find the thing that really hooks you in i think that's really important yeah i 100% agree with that and speaking of important we always get to the homework stage and i always ask my guests for a bit of homework somewhere something that you the listener can try after you're done listening to this and after um, you listen to where you can find craig so i'm wondering what would you recommend as homework for the listener so my homework would be, and, and I want to divide it in half if I can. For those people that are early in their art career, I think it is give yourself the time to explore. Uh, don't rush into trying to create a style. Let that come naturally. So give yourself time to explore. Explore subject matter, explore materials, explore medium, explore technique. And don't feel bad about giving yourself that time to explore. It's crucial, absolutely crucial. For those people that are further along in their journey, uh, I think that the niching down point is something that's quite interesting to do. And it might be a good exercise to actually look at what you could do. Are you spread too far in the amount of subjects that you're doing or the amount of materials that you're using or trying is it looking a bit disparate and seeing where you can actually narrow yourself down a bit narrow it down obviously to something that you're enthusiastic about and that you know that you want to um, do for a good period of time it doesn't have to be as narrow as what I am in just birds on just book pages it doesn't have to be that narrow but I think being able to narrow yourself down allows you to define your art practice and your art business uh, a lot easier and allows marketing and brand development um, happen naturally as well. That's brilliant. I, I think it's always helpful for people to hear kind of the creative outlook in both instances where you've got um, somebody who's just coming into it or early on 
and not being hard them hard on themselves and being able to research and investigate and be curious. And I love the niching down as well. I think there's so many people that need to kind of, we try and do so much hoping that all of a sudden someone's going to call us up tomorrow and say, you're the person we need uh, because you tried everything um, when you maybe you need to focus. It's brilliant. I love that homework. Yeah. And I think that there is there is real value in, able, in being able to define yourself because it makes your voice when you do talk about yourself and, and the work that you do, it, it makes it a lot easier to actually have that voice as well. But it doesn't have to be narrow, narrow, narrow. Um, you can still have a sense, you can still have a broadness to it so that it still allows you to be creative. It, it, it doesn't have to be something that confines you. Right. Yeah, I agree. So obviously we talked about your Instagram. So let's talk about where everyone can find you online. Your Instagram is like <laughs> the first link I'll put in, but where else can people find you, Craig? Yeah, Instagram's the one I'm most active on. Uh, so everywhere is, so Instagram's at CS Williams Art. Uh, Facebook is the same, at CS Williams Art, but I'm not as dedicated on Facebook. Uh, my website is cswilliamsart.com. And that's probably about it. I will include links to all of those and everything we talked about in the show notes. So I wanted to thank you so much, Craig, for coming on to the podcast. This is better than I expected it would be. Um, I feel motivated to not only get at my acrylics, but to niche down and to focus on, on what I'm doing at my end. And um, I think that the opportunity in speaking to you will contribute to me being a better artist. And I think it will inspire and motivate all the listeners in uh, their creative journey. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. And I must say too that um, thank you for the podcast because the podcast is massively inspiring. And I think for a lot of artists, having these sorts of podcasts to listen to while you're doing your work, that sparks creativity when you're listening to episodes and you're listening to people's journeys and you're listening to people talk about technique and things like that. That that also sparks a level of creativity. So I just want to say thank you back, mate. Thank you. Love hearing that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Craig. Uh, take care of yourself. Have a great year. We got to talk about the book. <laughs> so when, you, when the book comes out, you're going to come back on here and we'll talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Have a good one. Show notes, including links to everything Craig and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 75. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 